Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and nice people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, and today we are talking about orthostatic intolerance with Dr. Kathy Peterson. You may recall that Dr. Peterson is a neurobiology professor, a POTS researcher, a POTS parent, and founder and president of Standing Up to POTS. Dr. Peterson, thank you so much for being here with us again today. Thank you, Jill. I'm really honored to be here. As a longtime POTS patient myself, who really struggles with orthostatic intolerance, I have to admit that this topic makes me a little emotional, and that's because my personal definition of orthostatic intolerance is that it's the bleeping bane of my existence. But as a neurobiologist, what is your definition of orthostatic intolerance? Jill, I don't think you're alone in that. I think orthostatic intolerance is a huge issue for folks that are in the POTS community. The technical definition, orthostatic means when you're standing up, so standing up straight. Intolerance means that your body is not tolerating it. It doesn't like it when you're standing upright. And so in orthostatic intolerance, people feel worse and have more symptoms when they're standing up than when they are sitting down or laying down. And that's part of the definition as well, that those symptoms either disappear or they're lessened by laying down again. And I might add that a lot of folks probably have had a very mild form of orthostatic intolerance when they've had COVID maybe recently or the flu. And that's that feeling you stand up and you feel a little dizzy, you feel weak, maybe your vision changes a little bit. That's what we're talking about today. That is orthostatic intolerance that's happening as you're going from laying or sitting to standing. We wish that we only had those couple of little symptoms that might be associated with having a flu. What are some of the things that POTS patients experience when they stand up? There are so many symptoms that can be associated with orthostatic intolerance. And a lot of these folks are going to recognize as symptoms that you have. And and maybe you're not using those terms or your doctor's not using those terms. This is a big deal for folks in the POTS community. So a lot of them are related to the head and blood flow to the head that changes as you stand up. So fainting, which is sometimes called syncope or near fainting, pre-syncope. Lightheadedness is another one. So my daughter is not a fainter. Only about 40% of people with POTS faint. But she does get lightheaded, especially if she doesn't take her time when she goes from sitting to standing. Brain fog. I think this is a huge one. And brain fog means different things maybe to different people, but brain fog is when someone has issues with memory. They're not understanding or remembering or being able to draw from their memory banks. It can also be reasoning, where you're having a conversation with someone 
and they're standing and they don't make as much sense. They're not as conversant as they would be if they were in their recliner. And then concentration. So especially for folks that are at their job or in school, standing can really decrease their ability to concentrate over time. And I think sometimes we also hear about word finding difficulty, and that that's one that I definitely feel all the time. And it's so funny because it's sometimes the simplest word, you know what you mean to say, and the word just isn't there. That tip of the tongue phenomenon. With my daughter, when she's really not doing well, and she could be back in her recliner by this point, I can almost see the wheels churning. And it's just not catching. It's like she's trying to drive through mud. Very, very difficult. And you can see almost the alarm in her eyes when she realizes that she can't think the way that she wants to. And so it can be really disconcerting for the patient. It can also be frustrating with the person that's trying to communicate with them. So brain fog, I think, is one that's really common for lots of folks that have POTS. Headache is another one. And my daughter, before we really realized about orthostatic intolerance and and some simple things to decrease it, she would stand up quickly and almost double over in pain from headache. And that doctor really talked to my daughter about when getting up from the recliner, just droop her legs over the edge and then sit up and stay that way for about 30 seconds to a minute. And then very slowly stand and wait another 20 or 30 seconds before you start going. That made a huge difference for her. We'll come back to why that matters after we talk about some of these symptoms. But, you know, the body's not working right. That autonomic nervous system that we talked about in the last episodes, maybe our regular listeners are groaning at the mention of the autonomic nervous system. But that really plays a role here. And one interesting thing to me that I think we're going to get more to is that some of these things have to do with the head and the brain not getting as much circulation or as much oxygen as it likes. And I know that in my nutrition training, one thing we learn is that the brain is the hungriest organ in the entire body, that almost half the calories, you know, depending on your size and activity level, but almost half the calories in a day might go just to keep your brain alive. So when your brain's not getting the blood flow that it expects, maybe it's no wonder that so many different head-related symptoms can come up. The other thing about the brain is it doesn't store sugar and it doesn't store oxygen. So it doesn't have reserves. Your muscles have reserves of both of those, but our brain doesn't. And the other point I wanted to make in there is that the brain, not only is it the hungriest, but it's the pickiest eater. So it really only likes glucose. It doesn't take other sugars. It doesn't break down lipids and other things very well. Our blood sugar really relates to how our brain is functioning. And so I think that's a really excellent point when we think about the brain and why it's different from our heart and our muscle and other parts of the body. So I'm excited to get on to that part a bit later, but let's keep going with symptoms. So we have all those head symptoms, but that's not all. What other symptoms do we have? Let's move down the body. What does the heart do? So when it comes to the heart, 
there's that cardinal symptom of POTS, which is tachycardia, where that resting heart rate accelerates over 100 beats per minute. And a person without POTS, at rest, their heart rate will be between 60 and 100 beats per minute. Someone that has tachycardia technically is over 100 beats per minute at rest. There can also be changes in blood pressure that come with orthostatic intolerance. There can be increase in blood pressure or decrease in blood pressure. I would note, though, that if the blood pressure drops by more than 20 over 10 millimeters of mercury when you're standing, that they would add another diagnosis. So that would be POTS in addition to orthostatic hypotension, meaning that the blood pressure drops when that person stands up. And so that can be an additional one, but again, many people with POTS don't have that. We can move down a little further to the digestive system, and I know many of our listeners suffer from nausea and vomiting, and this can be really debilitating and unpredictable, can limit the diet. There are so many implications for this particular one, and I know for a lot of folks that the the nausea, the vomiting, and abdominal pain all sort of come together. I believe there's a few reasons that you can have nausea or abdominal pain related to POTS, and we should probably have an entire episode related to that. But in keeping with the same problem that the head doesn't get enough circulation and enough blood, one of the issues with the digestive system is that, like we talked about in our last episode with the autonomic nervous system, if you have low blood volume and if you're in fight or flight mode, you may not be sending adequate circulation to your digestive tract. So it can deprioritize any sort of digestion. As we move down the body, what are some other symptoms with the orthostatic intolerance? There are a lot of them that don't really fall into an organ system. So sort of general symptoms that people might complain about as they go to the doctor. One is fatigue. And fatigue is really common in POTS. Not everybody has it, but a significant number of folks do. Weakness is another one. Just feeling like your muscles are really weak, that they don't do what you want them to do as a separate issue from fatigue. And then, again, as we think about that autonomic nervous system, oftentimes sweating inappropriately when the room is not hot, when maybe you have not been exercising. Shaking can be another one where the hand just gets very tremulous. And then I think a lot of folks with POTS suffer from exercise intolerance. Not only do they have trouble standing upright and feeling well, but exercise really can exacerbate their symptoms and really make those symptoms much worse. So there's a lot that goes into orthostatic intolerance. And then this also ties into what we spoke about with the autonomic nervous system, right? Where adrenaline can be released when you're standing, maybe as a reaction of the brain not getting enough uh, circulation, and this can send people into more of a fight or flight state. So this is why, honestly, between so many symptoms, plus an adrenaline rush, it kind of turns standing into torture, in my opinion. I think a lot of people are worse in the heat or worse in mornings. And I think that we just cannot overemphasize how much orthostatic intolerance 
can affect daily life for some of us. The world is designed for being upright, every bit of it practically. And so this means that we can struggle with so many basic things like waiting in lines, cooking, making a bed or folding laundry, showering or brushing our teeth. Going to the grocery store is just a whole slew of challenges piled on top of one another. Same with navigating an airport. And when standing up is a battle, every little thing can be so hard. And I also just want to make the point that some of us are severe enough that it's not just standing that gets us, that sitting upright can also get difficult because we're still fighting gravity. And I know that's the case for me. I can sit longer than I can stand up, but it's still an upright posture. If I can elevate my feet, that helps, or if I can lean over or recline, it helps. But many situations in life demand that you sit straight up with your feet on the floor. And so for people like me, really crazy little things get very difficult, like just driving or riding on a bus, a train, or an airplane, or sitting upright in class or at work. The idea of getting called for jury duty is terrifying to me because of this. And, you know, just sitting through a nice long dinner can be an ordeal, even if it wasn't preceded by having to take a shower or get dressed or do my hair or whatnot. And so one final thing that healthy people may not realize is that when every moment upright is uncomfortable, painful, or on a path to passing out, then little tiny encounters that would be nothing to other people can be a really big deal to POTS patients. For example, running into friends and stopping to stand around and talk or taking group photos. These things should be nothing, yet for those of us with severe orthostatic intolerance, they can feel like torture. And for a lot of us, I think it means we end up having to sometimes have an emergency lie down in really weird places. At the airport, at Costco, on somebody's front yard. I know that many POTS patients will relate to having to sit or lie down in odd places because they got caught having to be upright too long and it eventually either got too painful or they were just too dizzy or too weak or on the verge of passing out. But my main point is just that the impact on quality of life is really substantial. I just don't think we can overstate how hard it is to struggle with being upright in a world that was designed for being upright. That was really touching. And, you know, my daughter has been sick for eight years. And I know you know that, Jill, and I think our, our listeners are starting to figure that out as well. But to hear you describe it so eloquently and in sort of one place, what it means to have this orthostatic intolerance it's difficult to hear as a mother of a POTS patient, but I think it's so important to get that out and to be able to articulate why this is so problematic. Because the more people that understand, that say, hey, Jill, we run into you wherever. Let's go sit on the bench over there and chit chat. Just a small gesture like that can make a world of difference to someone who's living with POTS and orthostatic intolerance. So thank you for sharing that with us. I think a lot of our listeners 
will really relate to everything that you said there. Thank you for bringing up the small gestures, because I think that what is a small gesture to you is an enormous gesture to someone like me. So if there are people out there listening, it's not a small thing. It's a huge favor. And, you know, I'll say getting stuck at the grocery store, having a friendly conversation with somebody who just wants to catch up, that can kind of ruin the rest of my day, unfortunately. And so having just one person who knows that if we could go sit down or sit in the grass, that's a really big deal to me. And I assume to many of of our listeners also. Back to the neurobiology of all this, what are some of the factors that determine how well or how poorly our bodies function in that upright position? There are several factors that are not working as well in someone who does have POTS. So one is blood volume. And so I think in our first episode, we talked a little bit about how the blood volume can be low and that can cause problems. And there are certainly some things that we'll talk about in a few minutes that you can do to try to increase your blood volume. So having the right blood volume is important. The second one, the idea that there are what we call muscle pumps, and essentially that's using the muscles to move blood as they contract. And so think about when you've been standing for a long time and you get pins and needles in your feet, you know, what do folks do? Automatically, you start moving around, you stomp your feet a little bit. Well, that's activating a muscle pump to try to move the blood out of the veins back up towards the heart. And so those don't seem to work as well in folks that have POTS. And then the last one is that autonomic nervous system. And so in our last episode, we talked a lot about the autonomic nervous system, and we're going to come back with it today. And if you remember from the last episode, the one that really seems to be problematic in POTS is the sympathetic nervous system. That was that fight or flight system. So the adrenaline surges that you were talking about before. Adrenaline is the old name for norepinephrine, which is the neurotransmitter of the sympathetic nervous system. And so when people are thinking about adrenaline surge, they are thinking about that sympathetic nervous system. So when we think about orthostatic intolerance in particular, it's important to understand that physiologically, your heart and how fast and how hard your heart is beating works together with blood pressure. And that you're constantly making little tweaks in that, increasing one and decreasing the other, to keep adequate blood flow to the heart and to the brain in particular, as well as the other organs. And so that should be happening normally, regardless of whether you're laying down, sitting, or standing up. And so what I'd like to do is just talk a little bit about what happens in someone without POTS, so a quote-unquote healthy person. And so when you go from sitting to standing, even someone without POTS gets activation of that sympathetic nervous system. Not a huge surge, but a little bit of activation of the sympathetic nervous system. And remember, that's the fight-or-flight part. So what that does is it increases the heart rate a little bit, and it increases the blood pressure. And when we increase heart rate and blood pressure, what we're doing is keeping the blood flowing through the body. And we're keeping it 
as we stand, gravity wants to pull all of that blood down to your legs and to your feet. And so as the heart rate goes up, we constrict the blood vessels and it brings the blood pressure up. That keeps blood coming back to the heart and then the heart can send it up to the brain. So gravity normally affects everybody when they stand up. And so as the gravity pulls that blood down towards their legs and feet, as they stand up, there's just less blood that's coming back to the heart and to the brain. And so again, what we do is have the sympathetic nervous system increase our heart rate, constrict the blood vessels, and increase that blood pressure to help keep that blood moving toward the heart. And so it's normal for people when they stand up to have their heart rate go up a little bit. It may go up 10 or 20 beats per minute. That's normal. So that's in someone who does not have POTS. Let's think about what happens in someone who does have POTS when they go from sitting to standing. And remember that the way that we diagnose POTS often is with a standing test or a tilt table test where we are literally looking at heart rate and blood pressure to see how they respond as you go from that laying position to a standing position. So again, in someone who has POTS, when they stand up, gravity is still working. So it's pulling that blood down towards their legs, down towards the feet. Now, lots of folks with POTS also have low blood volume. So they've got a double whammy problem. Their autonomic nervous system is not working particularly well and they have low blood volume. And so this is two problems that are actually going to act together to increase those symptoms. So the heart rate goes up. Okay, we know that. But what doesn't happen very well in lots of people with POTS is that the sympathetic nervous system, for whatever reason, is not causing the blood vessels to constrict. And so the blood vessels in the legs are staying dilated. That means the diameter is still quite large. And the blood just sinks and stays in the feet. And so a lot of folks with POTS, and I know, Jill, that you're one of them, that if you stand for very long, your feet sort of turn red and purple. And that's because we're not getting that blood flow out of the legs and back up towards the heart. So it's because those blood vessels are not constricting properly. Well, and an interesting aside to that is it took me a very long time to figure out that I had POTS. And on the way, I saw a lot of different specialists. And one was a vascular specialist who was able to measure with Doppler ultrasound that the blood in my legs was flowing the wrong direction. And so I don't know if that is representative of most POTS patients, but you may be able to actually watch that blood pool and flow the opposite direction that it's supposed to in the legs. The veins have valves in them, and so the valves are supposed to prevent that from happening. But it sounds like you've got so much vasodilation that maybe the valves are leaking a little yes, bit. Yes, that's what was happening. Right. So as gravity's pulling, we have a valve that's supposed to be there to keep it from going down to the next compartment. But if they're super vasodilated, then that blood just flows down and down and down. And of course, again, that's taking it away from the head and away from the heart. And what happens when the heart doesn't get enough blood flow is that it really increases the rate of its contraction. 
So remember we said in normal folks when they stand up, their heart rate might go up 10 to 20 beats per minute. In folks with POTS, we know it has to be at least 30 beats in an adult. That's the definition to clinically diagnose someone with POTS. 40 beats per minute in a teen. But when they tilted my daughter, her heart rate went up by 75 beats per minute and stayed there. And so as that happens, and again, remember, the blood is going down towards the abdomen and the legs more than it should normally. And that's when the symptoms appear. And so Jill did a really nice job about talking about how we need blood flow coming to the brain, going to our GI tract in order for us to feel good. And that's not happening. What's interesting to me about what you have just described is that, first of all, even though the heart rate is our cardinal symptom of POTS, it seems like the heart is the one thing really working properly and doing its job. It's trying to compensate for all this, right? That is true. But you're right. We use that as the cardinal symptom. We may be arguing in this episode, though, that it's the orthostatic intolerance that's really the big problem, more than just that rapid heartbeat. So let's talk about some things that folks can do if they're listening and they're hearing themselves here, all these symptoms that we're talking about. We've got some different things that people can try based on what maybe you know about your own specific version of POTS. So for folks that know that low blood volume is definitely part of their picture, there are lifestyle changes that they can make, like increasing salt. That can be pretty dramatic. It can be up to 10 grams a day and increase that fluid consumption, again, up to three liters per day. The reason that you need the salt is because it helps hold that fluid in the body so that you don't just pee it right out again. So that can help to increase blood volume. Another one that can't hurt is raising the head of the bed four to six inches. So putting a brick or something of the sort under the head of the bed can be helpful. And for some folks, their physician will write an order for them to get IV fluids. That doesn't help everyone, but there are some people that really respond quite well to IV fluids. Have you ever tried that, Jill? I have tried IV fluids, and they make me feel wonderful for a day or two, but then I feel worse afterwards. It's almost as if my body forgot how to hydrate itself, or I feel like I've had alcohol, which is another strategy that sometimes gets mentioned, which is to avoid diuretics, because those are basically like the opposite of salt. They flush fluid out of your bloodstream. Diuretics would be alcohol and caffeine. So if you're struggling with low blood volume, you want to try to avoid drinking alcohol and any kind of drink, whether it's coffee, tea, soda, that would have caffeine in it. And my understanding is that because caffeine is also a vasoconstrictor, that some people actually feel better with caffeine if vasoconstriction is their issue and that helps them. But then again, caffeine comes back and raises that sympathetic tone. So in our little nutrition world with dysautonomia, caffeine is very much a try it slowly and see how it works for you thing. And some people love it and some people hate it. That's a great tip. And I think that's how most treatments for POTS go. It's a lot of trial and error. And 
everyone's different and they respond to different treatments differently. And, and sometimes something works now and then six months from now it stops working or vice versa. So it's, it really is difficult and that's part of the problem for people that are living with POTS. If people have poor blood flow, so they're seeing a lot of blood pooling in their hands or in their feet, or they've got a lot of bloating in the abdomen, that could be because they're not getting enough constriction of those blood vessels. And so remember, we said the sympathetic nervous system is supposed to make that happen, but it's not working correctly. There are some things to do to try to decrease problems with blood flow, or rather to increase your blood flow, try to make it healthier. One of those are physical counter maneuvers. And I think sometimes people come upon these by accident. But an example, and then I'm going to toss it to Jill, who I think is the queen of this, might be just con- contracting the muscles in your legs and in your butt before you start getting up to really start getting that blood flow moving. Do you have other ones for us, Jill? Well, I find that Anything that really uses a lot of calf muscle works for me to the point where if I walk very slowly, that's not good. But if I can do a brisk walk, that helps. And up a hill is even better because it's a bigger range of motion. You get a bigger calf squeeze to the point where my neighbors probably think I'm a little nutty because... If I'm not feeling so good, but I'm not so far gone that I, you know, kind of crash for the day, I can save myself by going outside, walking up a steep hill, but not walking down it forward. I back down that hill so that I once again can get that full range of motion in my calf muscles. And I know that sometimes you hear physical therapists call your calf muscles your second hearts, and it's probably different for everyone, but I have found that my calf muscles are my best friends for helping me to keep my blood circulating. And I know we've been on many phone calls when you are out briskly walking so that we can have that conversation. I will not buy a house that is not on a hill. It is that important to me. That is funny. There are other things you can do if blood flow is an issue. So again, the salt and water loading, they helped with low blood volume, but they would also help here. So increasing the salt consumption as well as the fluid consumption. Compression garments are another thing to try. So whether that's compression stockings or an abdominal binder, if it's in the hands, there are compression gloves you can get. Those might help to push the blood out of the hands and feet and back into general circulation. And exercise, I'm almost afraid to say exercise because uh, some people do really, really well. And And I know Jill is one of those who really needs the exercise as you were just describing. And other people, like my daughter, it just drills them into the ground and makes them so much worse. And so I think part of that is whether chronic fatigue syndrome and myalgic encephalomyelitis is comorbid. It's another thing that they've got with the POTS or not. But for some folks like Jill, exercise is huge. And she was just describing how much better she feels when she really gets those calves, her her lower legs going. An interesting, I guess, cofactor with exercise is heat, however, for a lot of people. And 
Heat is a natural vasodilator, and it's one that I am very sensitive to. And so it sometimes, for people, it's a delicate balance between getting their exercise but not overheating. And, you know, that's where you might need to get creative about cooling vests or wet towels around your neck or doing it in a swimming pool. Because I I believe that heat can make a big difference for some people, not everybody. So as the body warms up, the way that you naturally get rid of that is by rolling the blood vessels towards the surface of the skin and then opening them up, increasing the diameter or dilating them. So you're exactly right. That could definitely be an issue for some folks. There are also some medications, and I think a couple of these that we're going to mention are really common for folks that have POTS. Mitodrine is one. And this is a vasoconstrictor. So again, its job is to go in and to decrease the diameter of these blood vessels so that blood gets back up to the heart and then we can get it up to the brain. So mitodrine works by increasing blood pressure and hopefully will also help to decrease that blood pooling as it helps the blood just flow more normally through the body. Another medication that's often given for issues with blood flow in POTS is Mestinon. And this one works a little differently, and it's trying to counter the sympathetic nervous system. So if you remember from the last episode, the autonomic nervous system has the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight-or-flight portion that we've been talking about today, but the other branch is the parasympathetic nervous system. And so Mestinon works to increase the parasympathetic nervous system. And as you increase that rest and digest system, it changes the ratio of sympathetic to parasympathetic tone. And that can help folks to feel better, and it can help the blood flow as well. And then the third category of treatment is really for people that we know have a very overactive sympathetic nervous system. So sometimes the physicians will call this hyperadrenergic POTS. I know, Jill, that you have that form of POTS. And some of the things that we mentioned already help folks that have hyperadrenergic POTS where that sympathetic nervous system is really overactive. So the countermaneuvers, again, that Jill has described already, and the exercise, but maybe also some relaxation techniques, doing some yoga, meditating, doing some deep breathing to try to slow down the sympathetic nervous system and kick up its opposite, that parasympathetic nervous system, a little bit. There are also some medications that we can give that might help with some of those sympathetic surges. Beta blockers, as a category, are a big one. And I know lots of folks with POTS are taking beta blockers, particularly if they have a lot of, they're called heart palpitations. So they're really feeling that heart beating in their chest. It's uncomfortable. They don't, they don't feel good, in addition to that racing heart. So beta blockers are very, very common. And then the last one is called Florinaf. And that one is helping to increase blood volume. And it's often used, again, in people that have this hyperadrenergic POTS, but it wouldn't have to be in that group. 
And the way it does that is by mimicking a hormone that we have in our body that helps us to reabsorb salt and water. So we already talked about the fact that people with POTS are taking an obnoxious amount of salt, way more than a typical American should be consuming. Same thing with the fluids, but the folks with POTS need to do that. The one caveat with Fluoronef is that it can deplete some of the other electrolytes, particularly potassium and magnesium. And so if you're on this, you ought to talk to your physician about potassium in particular and and maybe get a supplement for that potassium to be sure you have enough in the system. So I know that many of our listeners are probably doing many of these things and it hasn't completely resolved all of their issues. The one effect size that I'm kind of more familiar with is salt. I believe that research by Dr. Raj has found that a high salt diet can get your blood volume about halfway back to normal, but not all the way. I think some of us have made an art out of lifestyle adjustments to make with this. For example, I'm on the floor right now. I make the podcast from a mattress on the ground. But I wonder what your daughter or people that you're familiar with do to help avoid excess standing. Orthostatic intolerance has been a huge issue for her. When she was in middle school and high school, was only able to go to school two or three periods a day. So about two hours instead of seven periods. And it was largely due to the symptoms that came as she was sitting upright or standing and walking between classes. And so for her, she missed out on a lot of her life, a lot of her childhood and teenage years due to orthostatic intolerance. So for her, she just didn't go to the store. She didn't go to the library. She didn't go out to friends' houses. She didn't go to birthday parties. And she really missed out. Now, I'm happy to say that she is 19 now, and she's in college, and while she's not well, she is doing much better. She still has to pace herself. She has to really watch that she doesn't overdo, because she can end up in bed for a day or two, and, and that's not a good thing as a college student. But it's very difficult for her, and so for any families that are listening, please listen to your loved one and be patient with them, and know that they're not trying to get out of things. Their life has been turned upside down by orthostatic intolerance and by POTS. And while I'm not perfect at it, certainly, I try to be as supportive as I can of my daughter's goals, while also being constantly mindful of her limitations. I think you make a good point that... It affects so many different aspects of life, school, work, just getting your errands done. And I should say one of our upcoming episodes is going to feature an occupational therapist who's going to talk about strategies for dealing with that. But for me, I have to say I've had a couple decades now to work on this, and I feel like I've conquered many of these, but the hardest one is still the social aspect because so many social events involve going somewhere, waiting in a line, sitting upright for maybe a show or something. And so I know that what I'm working on is looking for more ways to enjoy normal, natural social interactions without having to be upright. And it's a little bit challenging, 
I think, you know, if you have a public swimming pool at your disposal, that maybe is one avenue to pursue. But I look forward to maybe speaking with other people in our community about solutions that they have found, because I think I think that's the toughest one for me anyways. Yeah, I think that would be a great topic. I think there is some silver lining for our community in the pandemic, and that is that we're finding Zoom and alternate ways to connect where people that are debilitated by POTS or other chronic invisible illnesses are not the only ones who are stuck at home. And so I think in some ways it's opened the social aspects for our chronically ill community. Not that we would wish a wish for a pandemic, but I do think that there is a silver lining for our community there. So thank you, Dr. Peterson, for all of this information about a really complex system and a complex symptom. Thank you for helping us to understand orthostatic intolerance and appreciate how we shouldn't take it for granted when our bodies are upright. They are doing a lot of things. So To everyone listening, we hope this was helpful. We thank you for joining us, and remember you aren't alone. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, www.standinguptopots.org slash podcast. And I would add, if you have any ideas or topics you'd like to suggest, send them in. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots.